Welcome back to Alien Minute, the daily podcast that analyzes the film Aliens minute by minute in short controlled bursts. I'm Kyle. I'm Brady. And today we're going to be talking about minute number 67. Folks, if you didn't hear us yesterday, uh, we may not sound like the usual host for the show because, in fact, we are not. Uh, I'm Kyle, and he's Brady, and we're from Pele Media. You might recognize our voices from such other podcasts as Ghostbusters Minute, Jurassic Park Minute, and Goonies Minute. Uh, we're going to be here for the next couple of weeks talking about Aliens Minute because John is on a very special assignment, and he asked us to come in and fill in in the show. And we jumped at the option because we are huge fans of the Alien franchise and the film Aliens in particular, and this is just a real joy joy for us to get together and talk about it. And today we're going to be talking about minute number 67, which starts off with Vasquez screaming at the sight of Drake getting doused with acid blood and ends with a flaming APC making its escape from the alien hive. So, uh, Brady, what do you think about the portrayal of Vasquez in this film? Is she an iconic female character in science fiction? Absolutely. She really is. Um, Jeanette Goldstein, you know, it's, it's so funny that she's unrecognizable here. And I can remember thinking, I, I really haven't followed her career. And one day I'm watching, what was it, Terminator 2? And I see Terminator her as, 2, yeah. Yeah, John Connor's uh, foster mother. And thinking, good God, that is, that's Vasquez right there. And I've seen her yeah. in other places and never recognized her. Um, and she's had an interesting career uh, since she, I think, dropped out of a- acting, where she is a, uh, she sells kind of specialty bras for women. And yeah, so it's, yeah, that's quite a uh, career change right there. But very, very cool lady, very interesting career, and always cool to you know get the chance to hear her talk about her experience with aliens. I think she's been very successful in the Brazier business too. She's, uh, I, I, you know, it's one of those things where you hear like an actor got out of like acting or you know ended their acting career and moved on to something else. And I want to say like the lady who was in uh, the Blair Witch Project uh, started selling like miracle metal, uh, marijuana. I don't know if that's really panned out for her, but with Jeanette Goldstein, uh, apparently her uh, boutique. Uh, is actually doing very well and if you follow her online she's just it's all the time she's like at trade shows and stuff like that selling these specialized uh you know bras for women and uh it's very cool like post-career thing for her but yeah i think that uh you know she's she's been great in everything that she's in she's awesome in near dark awesome in terminator 2 but i think vasquez is definitely the defining role of her career and for good reason because she's just fantastic in this film we actually get to see one of the real first emotional moments from vasquez here in this minute when she sees her very dear friend drake doused in acid and understands that this is kind of, you know, the end of Drake right here. So uh, a very you kind know, of emotional moment at the, at the beginning of this minute. But go ahead. Oh, no, I just want to say before we get off the uh, Jeanette Goldstein topic, whenever I say she likes to talk about her, or it's always great to hear her talk about her experience with aliens, I am referring to the film Aliens and not in the same way that Yefet Koto talks about his experience with aliens in the f- sense that he believes he was abducted by aliens wasn't that kind of a strange story to come out recently like that was was really strange yeah yeah he but he was he very convincing in what he was talking about as well it seems like the the moments if you don't know we're talking about Yafet Koda recently in an interview came out and said that he had uh actually had experiences with extraterrestrials in his life and his stories were very it seems he's very convinced that that's what happened to him <laughs> in in his life. But, uh, you know, I think famously Jeanette Goldstein, when she uh, auditioned for Aliens, she wasn't aware that it was a film about extraterrestrials and actually thought it was a film about uh, uh, people who were not native to an area coming in, you know, like a, a movie about maybe um, you know, refugees or something like that. So there's, you know, that reference earlier on in the movie where someone said, <laughs> I think it's Hudson says, you thought they were talking about illegal aliens. <laughs> right. That's know? a reference to that. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty great. But um, 
are you ever nervous? And I, I'm, I'm nervous when I watch Alien and Aliens because I know these are like closed sets inside of, you know, giant warehouses or I think in the case of Aliens, uh, a deactivated like a nuclear power plant uh, that they are so <laughs> loose with the flamethrowers in these yeah, films. Right. Does it make you nervous watching it? Yeah, I mean, it's just as dangerous as the situation they're presenting, uh, you know, on film. If I'm not mistaken, some of the sets in Aliens were also used in uh, as the access chemical sets in Batman, Batman 89. Yeah, And mm-hmm. I can't remember where I heard that. Uh, I'm sure it will at some point be confirmed on the Bat Minute podcast, Bat Minute 89, which I'm a big fan of. So yeah, it's uh, that, that's definitely true. I think you can see in some of the uh, stair stairwells that they're going up and down. If you go back and watch Batman, you're like, oh, this is this is the exact same place where they shot it, which is a decommissioned uh, power plant, uh, which they went and shot and shot this in. It's, you know, one of the things I love about Aliens is this movie was shot for like 20 million dollars or something. And, you know, thinking of, you know, uh, inflation and everything that still feels like for the scope and the scale of this film to be such a small budget, like they got every penny out of that budget in this film. And, you know, and they you did a little see, thing. You, Go ahead. Well, no, it's just, if there's one thing you can count on James Cameron doing, it is probably really pleasing the investors and the producers by showing every penny that went into these movies. I mean, Titanic, there is nothing that goes unnoticed. Yeah. Uh, and he does such a great job. Aliens is another prime example of that. You know, you hear all these stories about James Cameron being such a hard ass to deal with, but when you see the result of what he does in his films, you can see that the guy is, he's just a passionate person who knows what he's going to do and is not willing to compromise on it. You know, and even a film like Avatar, where he goes into, you know, his studio, I think it's like Lightstorm or whatever, invents all these new filming techniques. And, you know, you hear about like the budget for that film may have been somewhere in like the $500 million range. You know, they weren't just spending that on avatar one they were inventing new technology to be used for other movies but you see every penny on the screen when you watch a james cameron film titanic still astounds me that even though that film was 200 million dollars it was only 200 million dollars to make i I really Uh, hope go ahead go ahead go ahead uh and aliens is the same way that's all i was gonna say go ahead no yeah I, i really hope that avatar is not the last thing he does with his career. I really hope we get to see other film work. And obviously the guy's going to be doing things outside of film. I think one time I saw you, it was whenever he uh, dropped down to the lowest depths of the ocean or the Marianas Trench or something like that. And you called him James Cameron, achiever of all things. I mean, if there's anybody who's ever like made the most of their time on earth, it's, it's him. This guy has contributed not so much just to um, discovery of new technologies and things like that, but also to film and done so in such astounding ways. I don't think he's the best writer. Um, the Abyss, there's a lot of kind of over-the-top characterization. I think Titanic is actually a pretty poor film uh, outside of its technical achievements. They're, but, but I don't know. Every now and then he just scores. Aliens is such a great example. I love True Lies. I love how funny that movie is, you know, how it blends action and comedy so well and uh then mm-hmm. of course the terminator is just so iconic that you see it um emulated everywhere since then so guy you know, knows what he he's does, doing. He, he does get a lot of flack i think for the dialogue sometimes because it's a little bit on the nose but i think and it kind of reminds me of his filmmaking technique it's not i don't want to say it's so much that it's on the nose but it's exactly what it needs to be for the moment like aliens and titanic you know uh they, they aren't films that really need to flourish in the poetry 
of, you know, like prose, that they are films that exactly hit the notes that they need to hit. And I think that, you know, there's, I don't think there's a James Cameron movie that I don't like. There's some that I like more than others. And I think Aliens is definitely like, you know, one of the things on the top of the list. But I think that he definitely, when the, the, the man knows exactly what he wants. And when he gets there on day one to shoot, he has everything blueprinted out like this is what we're doing this is why we're doing it and I need everybody to fall in line because we're gonna you know try to get this thing in the most responsible way out of the door yeah. and you don't hear about a lot of, you know you, you do hear that he's a taskmaster on set but when you see the final result of everything you definitely see a film that's like well this is only because this is a person who wasn't willing to compromise on everything yeah. and I think Aliens is a film where you know you, you see the shooting technique of you know where they had like half of the hive was built as a model and the camera was positioned you know so that you think that you know the top of the hive which actually isn't built onto the set was just kind of a model that people were standing you know with a, like depth of field I don't know exactly right. the term I'm talking about but it's like you know they, they went in and they were like we have 20 million dollars to make this movie how are we going to make this work and it's like well, you know, here's what we'll do we'll use this you know these in-camera tricks to make it work and it works splendidly right here and you know just the you know in the last minute we were talking about that alien that gets blown apart and I forgot to mention that uh, there was actually a toy designed after that scene as well the scorpion alien out of the aliens uh, figure line was uh, kind of that alien. There was a button on the back of it you press, and the alien would like explode. And it's so strange that there was a children's toy line yeah. made for the Operation Aliens uh, cartoon that never got produced. But um, you know, he he did little things like casting. Uh, you know, ballerinas uh, or people with dancing backgrounds as the aliens and then only making parts of the suit because they were going to be shown only for a few seconds in the darkness. So you didn't need to make the whole suit. You didn't need to spend the money on developing like 15 different alien suits. I want to say there was like, what, like five or three or five? Alien suits made total for the film. Yeah, that's it's crazy that, you know, it feels like there's hundreds of these things, but they just stretched them so easily by saying like, well, we don't need to show five straight minutes of this thing like in in pure light you know so the audience can see it we just need the silhouette of it you know and then you know the thing that we're focusing on is these marines in a bad situation so yeah and uh, you know that that's something i was talking about a few minutes ago was uh you know the fact that you see every penny of the budget on screen whenever he does this well those weren't a whole lot of pennies you know he was able to like you said i I can't remember the exact budget of titanic but it was just incredibly small when compared to what you're seeing on film and aliens, you know, six alien costumes. And I never once think that it's, it's Mm -hmm. just the way he shoots and edits is, uh, totally convincing, you know? Absolutely. You know, and you said something earlier too about, you know, him doer of all things, I think is how I referred to him. And it's Mm -hmm. James Cameron is the kind of guy that like, when I hear him talk, he's, he's clearly a smart guy, you know, he knows what he's doing. Um, but he seems to this guy who's kind of like driven by pure will to live and experience things. And I appreciate that about him more than anything else. It's not like James Cameron doesn't get to go down to the bottom of the ocean because he's like this, uh, you know, like nautical genius, you know, something like that. He's just this guy who wants to do it, has a very singular vision of how to get done what he wants to get done. And he does it. And I think there's something almost like blue collar about his approach to filmmaking that I really appreciate. So he, um, I, I see a lot of parallels to him and Walt Disney. Uh, I think mm-hmm. Walt Disney was definitely the more family-friendly version of this type of uh, figure. Yeah. And these are guys who just, they, they've got these grand ideas, they want to see them done, and they just say, well, hell, nobody else is really going to do it. Nobody else shares the vision for which I have for it, uh, so let me be the guy to go out and do it. And both of yeah. them were just pioneers in new film technology and new theme park technology and mm-hmm. uh, just ways of getting ideas across and were uncompromising and knew what they wanted to do and made history. Uh, Both of them are, it's, you know, 
I, I just see such a parallel between those two people. Yeah. And what, one thing I really like about him, too, is he never does the same thing twice. He never repeats himself. He does something. I don't know that necessarily he gets bored with it, but he doesn't want to go back and do the same thing again. So he does something new, you know, like even with Terminator and Terminator 2, those films are starkly different in what they're trying to achieve. And, you know, speaking yeah, of theme parks, it, just real quick, I'm going to <laughs> Avatar Land in a couple of weeks and I cannot wait because I've heard nothing but like amazing things about it. So, uh you know, I don't know, maybe if, maybe if I end up doing another Alien Minute at some point, I'll spend the entire show talking about how cool Avatar Land was. But True. Yeah. Um, so to get back into the minute here real quick, and this will probably be a big James Cameron love fest for the next two weeks that we're on here. But yeah, that's right. Okay. Aliens Minute. I forgot about that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought that, speaking of the flamethrower on set, and I'm sure everything was done safe because we haven't really heard about many people getting you know, injured on, on too many of James Cameron movies, uh, there was almost a, a major injury that happened here, which is that the APC filled up with smoke while they were shooting some of these interior shots, and they had to remove the top of the APC. Or at least I thought I had heard that. I went back and tried to find that information and could not find it anywhere. But I know that I have heard before that the APC was filling up with smoke and people almost got injured. Did you ever hear anything about that? Yes. And Al Matthews, uh, who plays Apone, is a former military man and started, he just kind of jumped right back into that mindset and started calling out orders for everybody on how to fix the situation and ended up doing just that. God knows he might've saved some lives in doing that. Uh, but yes, I have heard that. It's very cool to have him involved with the movie, and I'm very sad that we don't have a pwn in any of the moments that we're talking about because uh, he's he definitely brought that realism to it, and you can see when he's ordering everybody around that he's you know I think he mentioned something in like a behind the scenes thing that uh, nobody better point a gun at him because he would just go back into marine mode and just like you know take it out of their hands and you know it would be a bad situation. But <laughs> it's always good to have somebody on set like that you know who's actually lived through it. But uh, so yeah, uh, so we get you know there's a moment here where it shows too Ripley is I think she starts to back up the APC and she grabs the steering wheel for it and I have never been able to wrap my head around how that steering how that steering uh, like scenario like works you know it looks like almost these two joysticks that are coming up that she's like moving back and forth you never see her like turning them side to side it seems just to kind of like dictate the speed on the APC or which direction it's going but we kind of see her start to do that and we get a really cool scene where Hicks is trying to close the door on the APC and a xenomorph is trying to make its way in. And one of the cool things about this situation or this scene is we finally have the Chekhov's shotgun, if you will, actually plays off in this scenario. Do you know what the Chekhov's gun is? Uh, no, I, I, I do, but the listeners might not. So I don't know if it's, if it comes from Star Trek Chekhov or it comes from Chekhov, the playwright, but if there's, if there's, if something is introduced in a film or a play, it has to pay off later. And, a perfect example of this is earlier when uh, Frost has to go around and collect everybody's magazines for their pulse rifles. Hicks pulls the shotgun out of his back and says, I like to keep this handy for close encounters. Well, we actually get the payoff of that scene where he gets a very close encounter with a xenomorph and he has to dispatch it with his shotgun. Uh, bad use of this would be in Tron Legacy where we see uh, Flynn's personal uh, light cycle, which is this amazing looking like white light cycle that he has inside of his house. And we hear that this is the fastest light cycle that's ever been made, you know, and it can outrun anybody else. And we're like, oh, cool. So later in this movie, like uh, Flynn's son is going to get in this thing and like outrun some people. And no, he just drives it into the city and gives it away to a homeless person for an umbrella. (laughs) It's like a complete, like there has to be a payoff for an element that's introduced earlier in a screenplay. So we have Hicks show that shotgun. And then right now, he gets to use it 
pretty awesomely by shoving it right into the mouth of a xenomorph that has stuck its head into the APC and just blowing its head to bits and dousing uh, Hicks's arm, uh, excuse me, Hudson's arm, unfortunately, uh, with acid there. On okay, the end of question. The great Bill Paxton. Yes. So we, we just recently got Drake uh, going out, actually, because he has the acid, you know, sprayed all over himself. Mm-hmm. Here, just seconds later, we get the same thing happening to one of our characters. Does it seem a little... Uh, redundant or kind of, uh, I, I, prob- probably not because in the reality of the situation, this would definitely be going on probably more so than we see here in the scene. I think what's happening more than anything else is we're having that point driven home that this is not a situation that these Marines can shoot their way out of, that they're going to have to use their brains. They came down to this planet with so much firepower and it's really been rendered completely useless because if they get close enough to get a good shot to one of these things in the close quarters that they're in, they're going to harm themselves. So I think we're reminding the audience that there is the acid for blood, which comes up several times. I think that's more of a, point driven home in this film than it was an alien in any other of the films that, you know, this, you can't shoot your way out of this thing, especially with explosive rounds, uh, you know, in the bullets that, uh, when we have Hudson doused with it there, it's just backing that up again. Like you can't do that. There's no way you can, you know, shoot your way out of the situation. It's just going to be bad. You've got to run and you got to get out of here. And, uh, I think that further drives home the survivalism, which is at the core of this franchise. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think more than anything else, just, uh, just reinforcing that. But, uh, if, you know, but finally we get Hudson, in a situation where he now has every right to complain about everything yeah, up until this exactly. point, he's bitching and moaning about every little thing that happens. And now we have him uh, doused in acid and it's like, Oh, okay. Finally, Hudson is able to, <laughs> uh, is able to com- have something to finally complain about. So, but that shotgun in the mouth thing was actually pretty cool because they shot that in reverse, uh, which is another one of those cool James Cameron things. He gets into a situation and, you know, has to figure out like, well, how can we shoot this? The script calls, for uh, Hicks sticking his shotgun into the alien's mouth. And that's kind of a hard thing to do. You know, you've got an actor in the suit or a puppeteer back there, and you have an actor that's supposed to shove this gun into the mouth. What's the safest way to do this? What's the best way that this will read on screen? Well, the way they figured out how to do it was to start off the shot with the shotgun in the mouth and then have him pull it out. And we see that, I think, later in the movie, too, where a face hugger hugger is supposed to jump onto the camera, and the way they shot that on set was to just pull it off. Incredible moment. You know, and that's, again, one of these things I was talking about in yesterday's minute. Uh, Cameron employs such simple techniques like that that are still so effective. And I think the reason it's most effective, the most believable here, it passes here, is because it's an alien. The xenomorph is not something natural, so whenever it does reach through the door and its fingers and its hands just somehow almost magnetically grip the sides of the doors, mm-hmm. we, we believe it, and it's that much more unnerving because this is a species. This is some living thing that we, we're not familiar with. It is alien to us, uh, and it's, oh man, it gets me every time I watch the scene, just how freaky, just how perfect it pulls this off. Granted, it's because yeah. the hands are already there, and then they're being pulled out, but, uh, you know, and, and the thing that really... the person that sells the thing even you know most okay let me try this again the actor that's selling this the best is the actor who's not putting too much movement into it because they know it's going to be played in reverse and their movements almost when an actor is blinking their eyes in a shot that's played in reverse and you just you tell that something is just a little off well the actor here i believe that's bill paxton standing right by the door uh Mm -hmm. is just moving ever so slightly and it's in that that you believe this crazy uh, just 
I don't know, unnatural way that this alien comes through the door and grips it and begins to push it back. So yeah. it's, yes, there, it's there's nothing take. that reads that it's being pay, played backwards exactly. as opposed to like alien. When there's a shot of the camera, I think moving down to the egg in the, uh, derelict ship, the, the space jockey ship. And there's like water dripping upwards, which yeah. almost kind of plays off of the fact that it's just so weird and bizarre and alien to you, you know, but at this one, it's like, they definitely, they got there and they figured out how to make this work on set. And that's one of the things I love about this movie is when I mentioned blue collar earlier, I wasn't saying it as an insult. I'm saying it as people getting in there and looking at the machinery and the technology and the mechanics of how the thing works and just making it work. Yeah, it no, that's, so well. that's not an offensive way to put it at all. In fact, I think that's a compliment to the credit mm-hmm. of these people who have to think outside of, um, you know, just, I don't know, all these film special effects that say George Lucas would have been employing and and using uh just a few years earlier in star wars and here we are with okay this is what we need to have happen what's the simplest most cost efficient way we can do it shoot it in reverse wham bam thank you ma'am done works so, perfectly perfect yeah. organism perfectly shot before we close out today's episode I, something was occurring to me as i was watching the xenomorph stick its head into the apc and i kind of wanted to run it past you here Uh, Being a fan of the franchise and having the meta knowledge of the alien prequels that have come out, uh, looking at this alien stick its head into the APC and try to kill these people, is any of that changed for you, having the knowledge that this species was created by both a hyper-religious species of of, of, uh, a, a civilization that spans the stars and then also their technique being altered by a rogue AI. Is any of that, does that change the way that you watch just this scene? It does, and I wish I could say that I separate things that I like from things that I don't like because it shouldn't affect it. Uh, I'm, you know, listeners of our Patreon uh, episodes might know that I'm not a fan of Prometheus and uh, Alien Covenant at all, and I think it greatly detracts from just the alien nature and my the, the limited knowledge that I should have of these things that makes them so much scarier. I don't want to know where the shark in Jaws was born, where it came from, uh, because it would just kind of take away the special mystery of the space jockey and the mystery of how the aliens work. Why are they greater uh, than, than the Marines? Why are they more powerful and more equipped than Marines when they have absolutely nothing at all? The mystery in that is what makes it so fun. Uh, you know, it's, God, I wish it was something that I was able to just, I don't know, kind of separate from each other, but I can't, um, I, you know, I don't know that I'm answering your question there. I, I do want to say that to that end, we've seen Ridley Scott kind of come back and take over the franchise that he started. Uh, and I would love to see somebody else take it over. And I would love to see what James Cameron could come back and do. I, I would, and I wouldn't. You know, the the thing that we're celebrating, you know, we just keep gushing about here is the use of, uh, let's, let's say no CGI. And that's the thing that is really selling us on all this and making it so special. And if he were to come back today, I just can't help but think he would be using all digital effects and all this stuff that would just kill it for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, there I go on a tangent that I don't think is relevant at all to what you said. No, no, no. It's actually, I think you answered my question completely. And it's one that I kind of wanted to to talk a little bit about this, you know, because like right now the franchise of Alien is kind of in a weird state. I'm going to take the the opposite uh, viewpoint that you have there. And I do respect your viewpoint. I respect the viewpoint that anyone out there that, you know, they feel that they've had kind of the mystery of the Alien taken away. Uh, my personal opinion is that 
uh, introducing the engineers and introducing what David had done to their plan. Actually, I, I, I like that. I think it's a really cool kind of twist on this, this thing rather than just being this, you know, species that lived out in space, uh, you know, giving them this kind of like, you know, they were this result of this, you know, like almost like, you know, religious organization that spanned the stars and created humanity. And we kind of have a, you know, link to them in that. I actually think it gives a lot of depth to the universe. And I like that. And I like where they're going with the story, even though I, I, I enjoyed Prometheus a lot. Uh, I did not enjoy Alien Covenant to the same degree, and I believe that I did not like it as much because they actually had aliens in it. And I kind of feel that the Star Beast, the Xenomorph, is kind of done because we've seen so much of it in films. I, I don't; it's not as interesting to me as the broadening yeah. of the universe is as a whole. Um, and it's interesting because I think since you and I talked about Alien Covenant. Uh, on an episode of our Patreon podcast that we did. And since we've gotten here to now, it's come out that Fox is really kind of reassessing what they want to do with this franchise because Alien Covenant was a bomb at the theater, even though it was shot for a very reasonable budget. Uh, I don't think it even crossed like $100 million for that. They just, I guess the the poisoning of the, of the fan base, just kind of like that came from Prometheus, was too much to really get people out to the theater again. And I think that's a shame because... Uh, yeah, they're going to make more alien movies because the alien franchise brings in a lot of them in like marketing, lunchboxes, toys, things like that. But the films themselves seem to be falling off. And I think that's because a lot of people thought they wanted more xenomorphs in alien films. And then Alien Covenant comes along and it's like, oh, no, we've really kind of seen all that you know can happen with those. I would like to see David's story brought to a conclusion, but I don't know that we're going to get that. I think that the next iteration of the Alien franchise might be a hard reboot, and I really hope they don't do that because I think that there's enough interesting stuff in here to keep it like one canonical universe, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know where they're going to go. I'm a little bit worried about how everything's going to play out, but, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen Alien Coven again since I thought, saw it in the theater. I bought it on you know Amazon Digital, but I haven't had an opportunity to go back and rewatch it and kind of see how it how it plays out for me. But I think the idea of David the you know creation that has ascended to what he believes to be godhood but he's also very imperfect you know there's that scene where he's talking to walter uh i think you you said that around the uh, himalayan salt lamp lights you know yeah uh, <laughs> and he mentions something about the ozymandias poem and he gets the author wrong he says you know like byron wrote it and walter corrects him and says no shelley wrote it and he has to face the fact that he's an imperfect creation and he doesn't gel well with that. I think he's a fascinating character and I would like see, to see where his story goes. Yeah, that's the more interesting part of those films for me. And God, I hope the listeners don't mind that we're kind of going off on a little Prometheus Covenant tangent. But um, that's what I think the more interesting thing here is and not the alien connection, not the Prometheus, excuse me, the space jockey connection. So, mm -hmm. you know. I, I, th I think uh, there, there could be a very interesting film made about what happens to David and how all this ends up personally, if I'm the writer, David merges his AI with all Whalen Yutani artificial intelligence and he becomes mother and he becomes Ash and he becomes Bishop. And he's the one that makes sure that the egg is on the Sulaco at the very end. But I don't know how you work that into a screenplay. So that's just kind of like what I would like to see done with it. But uh, anyway, so that's just kind of a larger question. I just at that one moment when the alien shoved its face in through the APC, I'm like, this is a creature that was created by a spacefaring 
like star spanning civilization that uh, may have been wiped out by its own creation. And I, I think that's pretty interesting, but I perfectly respect anybody that's out there and says that, it, you know, knowing that kind of ruined everything for them. So, but uh, yeah, that's all I really have for this minute. You got anything else for this one? No, that is it for me. All right, great. Well, folks, we're going to be back tomorrow on Wednesday for minute number 68. And again, we're going to be here for a while. Uh, John has given us uh, the opportunity to come in and fill in for these two weeks, and we really thank him for that. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we will see you tomorrow. If you're interested in what we do uh, and you've, you've had a good time with this, you definitely want to check out our other shows, uh, Goonies Minute, which has wrapped up, Jurassic Park Minute, which has also wrapped up, and the show we got started on Ghostbusters Minute, which has also wrapped up. And uh, John actually joined us for a couple of episodes of Ghostbusters Minute as well. So uh, yeah, go check those out. Those are all done. And if you are into sports, we do a weekly sports uh, podcast. Brady and I don't, but we produce it. Uh, it's called Undrafted, and I think right now we're going to be getting into the uh, NCAA football season, so a lot of exciting stuff going on over there on Undrafted. So Undrafted, Jurassic Park Minute, Goonies Minute, Ghostbusters Minute, you can find those wherever you find quality podcasts. So, All right, Brady, you ready to go ahead and get out of here? Let's go. All right, folks, please join us again tomorrow for minute number 68. Have a great day. <laughs>